0: verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually or moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is immense for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Glorify God in your body.
1: Well, our subject this morning is sex. More precisely, sexual immorality. We're talking about sex and the city and body matters. In 1986, in the female unit, Germaine Greer declared, human beings have an inalienable right to reinvent themselves. In 2003, Zygmunt Bowman, in his Liquid Love, a book on sex and relationships in the modern world, wrote, we have become plastic people for whom the contours of our identity can be shifted and changed as we wish. Liquid Love, Liquid Modernity, the two books. The only permanence in Liquid Modernity is change The only certainty in liquid modernity is uncertainty. And Bowman refers to top pocket relationships. Instantaneity and disposability is everything. Well, I hope today we're going to see that for the Christian, our body matters. God has designs on your body. Our bodies have a future our bodies belong to God. And I hope we'll see that God's design for our bodies, for sex, is beautiful, it works, it's good. That the creator knows all about sex and the God who designed sex enables good sex. I hope we'll see that our culture groping and fumbling in the dark, far from permissive, progressive, enlightened, advanced, ruins sex, degrades sex, has the lowest possible view of sex, and the top pocket relationship is like that cheap Rolex you buy in the market stall. It's a fake. First then, our bodies matter to God verses 9 through 14, there has been a costly reclamation. And secondly, our bodies belong to God. There is a precious new relationship. Our bodies matter to God, 9 through 14. I've deliberately included in this morning's reading material from last week's passage, because we didn't quite get around to covering it, There are actually two sections, chapters 6, verse 1 through 11, and then chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. You'll remember that chapter 6, verse 1 to 11, contained three questions from Paul. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And then verses 12 through 20, today's passage, a further three questions. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Paul is giving the Corinthians their sex education and he's taking them back to, let's talk about where babies come from, the key stage book for nine-year-olds. Haven't you understood that yet? So the third, do you not know, in verses one to 11 of chapter six, lists four new areas of sin. Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, as such were some of you. It's interesting, isn't it, that in the midst of the sin list, these four initial in verse 9, you find idolatry. That's because in the Bible, wrong thinking about God always leads to wrong thinking about sex, of course it does. God invented sex. Sex and marriage reflect the relationship within the Godhead, the members of the Trinity are complementary in the way they relate to one another. The relationship of marriage is complementary in the way husband and wife relate. And sex and marriage are modeled on the relationship between God and his people. God is exclusively, permanently, publicly, intimately committed to his people, emotionally committed to his people. Marriage is an exclusive, permanent, public, intimate, emotional commitment. So abandon a right understanding of the covenant-keeping God of the Bible, and we will eventually abandon a right view on sex and marriage. It's inevitable and with the idolatry of the 60s and 70s, that's the 1960s and 70s, the sexual revolution was inevitable, as inevitable as the collapse of morality in the city, trustworthiness and so forth. Depart from God. You depart from virtue. Let's let, look then at the ugly sin list, beginning in verse nine. Neither the sexually Immoral. Sexual immorality is any form of sexual stimulation, verbal, visual, virtual, outside of a permanent, publicly recognized, exclusive relationship between one man and one woman for life. It includes pornography, much of the Hollywood film industry, much modern advertising, much of what counts as normal in the city. Adultery is any form of sexual activity by one marriage partner or another outside of the marriage relationship. The practice of homosexuality is same-sex eroticism. Notice it is the practice of homosexuality. This does not refer to those tempted in the area of same-sex relationships who are resisting temptation and living a celibate life. You can see from the footnote in your Bible there that two words are used in the original, one for the active, one for the passive or receptive partner in a same-sex, sexually erotic relationship. There are a significant number in the congregations of St. Helens who are tempted in the area of same-sex sexual attraction. This does not refer to the temptation. He's speaking about the practice of homosexuality. It's become common in some circles to suggest that Paul is speaking only in his writing about exploitative or forced sexual activity with underage boys, prostitutes, and slaves. And it's become common in some circles to suggest that the Apostle Paul in the first century simply would not have understood the concept of stable, committed, same-sex relationships that we know today. Neither of those views stand scrutiny. So with regard to forced, exploitative sexual activity, the Greek word referring to the passive partner here in the text will not allow such a view. He's not referring only to exploitative coercive partners. The technical book written on first century and these texts is by William Loder. It's over 500 pages long, between five and 600. You can read it, I've read it cover to cover, but you can get a hold of it very easily. Loder is by no means committed to the Bible's teaching on sexual morality, and he says so in the, what he writes but he's crystal clear that the texts refer to all homosexual practice. Now the fact that four areas of sin in verse nine are laid alongside five areas of sin in verse 10 is important. So verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You're tempted in the area of heterosexual sexual immorality. You're tempted in the area of adultery. You're tempted in the area of homosexual sex. You're tempted in the area of greed, of theft, of drinking too much, of ruining somebody's reputation by speaking wrongly about them, of a business decision that is on the darker shade of uh, tone of shady. They're all listed together. This prevents the church from singling out one particular group and wagging our finger at them. The warning, shall not inherit, neither the sexually and so forth will inherit the kingdom of God, is not a kind of one strike and you're out. This refers to habitual, unrepentant, willful, ongoing, unchecked rejection of God's command to repent of such activity. It's the kind of line that goes, well, I know the Bible says this, but I refuse to recognize it. I know there's teaching on this in the Bible. but Actually, I'm not going to look at it and carry on just as I am. Such will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course not. God is pure. God is opposed to theft. God hates malice. God is full of love. God is opposed to adultery. There are a number who are tempted in the area of same sex sexual temptation in the church family here. A word to you. I'm so glad you're here with us. We welcome you at St. Helen's with open arms. You're not alone. We have had and have numbers within our staff team over the years who face the same temptations as you. Nobody here in the congregation is sexually pure, not one of us. Sexual immorality is any form of sexual stimulation, verbal, visual, virtual, physical, outside of a permanent, publicly recognized, exclusive relationship between one man and one woman for life. Nobody will put their hand up and say, I am entirely sexually pure. We seek to help you in your particular temptation. There is a group for people who face this particular temptation. They meet a handful of times each year just to encourage one another to remain pure. And if that's you, wherever you're at in your thinking on this, and you'd find it helpful then please do come and talk to me. But from verses nine to 11, you can see that Paul understands this behavior to be in the past. You can't miss it. And this implies transformation. As such were some of you. And this indicates that repentance, change, new direction, battle with sin is expected for the Christian. Oh, you used to take to the keyboards to hammer out a defamatory tweet. You were a reviler. By the way, that's in the same category as an orgy in the Bible. As such were some of you, there's been a change. You once slept with your girlfriend uninhibited. You were sexually immoral. Uh, But as such were some of you, but there's been a change. Once you lived the gay lifestyle, once you were a thief, once you were a gossip, a drunk, a cheat, as such were some of you. There's been a change, a costly reclamation, a clear transformation. And look at the language of verse 11. You were washed. That's wonderful, isn't it? You've been cleansed. You were sanctified. That's beautiful. You've been set apart for God's own holy use. You were justified. That is the final verdict of God on Judgment Day has now been in the present declared over your life. God sees you as perfect because of the work of Jesus. And it is the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The finished work of Jesus is applied to the present life of the believer in and through the third person of the Trinity. Look at verse 11. It will probably challenge some of our thinking. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the finished work of Christ on the cross is brought into the life of the believer in the present by the Holy Spirit, so that you have over your life, if you like, a banner reading, washed, sanctified, justified. It's wonderful, isn't it, this costly reclamation? My wife's father had many gifts. One was art and furniture restoration. As a very young man, he went down to a junk shop in Brighton There was a grand piano. He bought it for pennies. It had pictures painted on the side of it of prancing ponies. Its legs were battered. The ivory keys were completely smashed. And whatever you call those things in the bonnet of a grand piano, what are they called? Those strings. They were all over the place. He reclaimed it painstakingly. And there it sat, in the corner of his sitting room, Steinway, beautiful. You have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified, God the Holy Spirit dwells within you and that changes everything. Now, in verse 12, Paul quotes now from the Corinthians. Technically, it's the start of a little new section. You can see that in your text there in the Bible. Some of it is in quotes. That's because he's, I think, quoting from the sort of things they said. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And I think their quote goes on, and God will destroy both one another and the other. So it seems that amongst the Corinthians, some were suggesting because they've turned to Christ, what they do with their bodies no longer matters. It's a little hard to get hold of the logic, but from the rest of the letter, it looks like they think there is no physical future beyond this world. And therefore, given that they are now united spiritually with Jesus the physical no longer matters because at the end of this life, you know, rather like the snake that sheds off its skin, at the end of this life, our bodies will just be shed off and our spirits will continue to live with the Lord Jesus. I am told by the boffins that this is very Greek thinking from the first century. So if our spirits and souls have been raised with Jesus, therefore we exist already in our spiritual state, we're spiritually his forever. When we die, we'll go straight to be with Jesus. Our physical body will be sloughed off like a snake's skin, just shed. And therefore, our bodies are irrelevant. So what we do with our bodies really doesn't matter. This could not be more 21st century. This is 2022, right in front of your eyes there in Corinth. If my body doesn't matter, then greed's fine. And like Mr. Creosote in Monty Python's Meaning of Life, I'll have another mint. And if my body's just going to be shed at the end of life, then what I do with my body alcohol, that's fine. Oh, pour me another pint. And when it comes to greed, well, I'll eat the whole bucket in KFC. Because Jesus doesn't mind what we do physically because our physical bodies are going to be shed and the future is only spiritual. You see, so close to 2022, isn't it? The pocket relationship. Oh, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Liquid maternity, plastic people. The physical doesn't matter. Eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow you die. And Paul counters that absolutely, doesn't he, in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up, that is, physically, by his power. And so the physical really does matter to God. Your whole person, body, mind, and soul has been bought by the Lord Jesus is precious to him, your body matters. You go on Tinder or Grinder or Match or eHarmony, you hook up with somebody, you invite her back to your place, don't you know your body matters? You meet a lad in the university, CU. You. you, head out to the club and somehow you end up in some dark room somewhere. Don't you know your body matters? There's this girl in the office, you know, I'm so profoundly attracted to her and it just seems, seems almost as if I can't control. Don't you know your body matters? Your mate's at school on Thursday evening, Saturday afternoon, mum and dad are out. You all pile around to one of their houses. Don't you know your body matters? Now, in 15 through 20, Paul builds on your body matters to God and spells out that our body is owned by God. Verse 15, your body has a new owner, the disgrace of sexual immorality. 16 to 18, your body has a new owner, the damage of sexual immorality. 19 to 20, your body has a new owner, the denial of sexual immorality, the disgrace of it. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? In the first century, sex with temple prostitutes was normal. You went to worship. You had sex with a temple prostitute. Your sexual activity ensured the fertility of your fields. That was the thinking. Once you abandon God, your thinking goes completely screwy. Idolatry. Idolatry always results in sexual immorality. And sexual immorality and adultery, homosexual practice, were as commonplace in the first century as they are in Hollywood, in the film industry, amongst your university college mates, in your school, here in the city. The dating apps of today are very close to the temples of yesterday. But if there's been a costly reclamation, there is now a precious new relationship. And if the Lord Jesus has washed you through his costly death on the cross and now claimed you for his own, if you now belong to him, don't you know that you're now a member of Christ? God, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. How could you take your body and unite it in sexual immorality with an individual to whom you are not bound in permanent exclusive union? How could you? How dare you? Your body belongs to God, to Christ. The damage of it, 16 to 18. Lying behind all of this teaching is God's good plan for sex and marriage. Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute become one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, Paul quotes here from Genesis 2, which is as applicable, relevant, and as countercultural and challenging and beautiful today as it was when it was first written. Genesis 2 has God's good plan for safe sex. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Here is safe sex, sex as it was meant to be. A public, permanent, physical relationship. Public, he leaves. Permanent, they cleave. Physical, one flesh. Between one man and one woman, a man shall leave and cleave to his wife. Till death us do part is the only place for safe sex. In marriage, one woman and one man become one flesh. That's what's going on in sex. You are being bonded together in intimate, emotional, psychological, physical union. That's why it's so intimate. Just saying, oh, we'll slap on a condom, that doesn't make it safe sex. This means that the sin of sexual immorality is a sin against ourselves. That is, it's a sin against ourselves because we are now joined to Jesus and our body belongs to Jesus, so we are actually uh, damaging ourselves in that regard, but it's also damaging because it's just damaging sex outside of marriage. Of course it is. You know, the sense that the top pocket relationship, even if it's a relationship that lasts for five years, is not damaging is absurd. You can't take your body and unite it in intimate binding union to one person, and then take your body and unite it in intimate binding union to another person, and then take your body and unite it in intimate binding union to another person without doing profound damage. Sex, you see, joins you to a person physically, obviously, emotionally, more and more. Psychologically, you become one flesh. Sex involves exposure and vulnerability and intimacy. And that's why sexual immorality is so damaging. Oh, I don't really matter. My body's plastic. I'll sleep with somebody else. No wonder that our culture has such issues with image and self-worth, of course. What a profound stupidity that both promotes sex as precious, insisting that it's intimate, and promotes sex as a consumer disposable. I mean, can you see the nonsense of that? And so politicians who say, well, just slap on a condom, give them a bit of sex education, and that'll be safe sex, I'm afraid, are either very foolish indeed or utterly cowardly. They don't say it. But what Paul is speaking about here is only amplified as we see that sexual immorality is especially damaging for the Christian because the Christian's body is now for the Lord, belongs to the Lord. The Lord dwells within your body. So your whole physical body, sexual union with somebody who is not, somebody to whom you are committed in lifelong relationship of the opposite sex is profoundly damaging to you because you belong to the Lord. Why would we cheapen the eternal costly gift of God by uniting this precious body in such a way? And then finally, verses 19 and 20, the denial of it. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price Glorify God in your body. The point is, having been washed and having been cleansed and declared right with God, God the Holy Spirit now dwells within. You know those signs you see on the tube, baby on board. Maybe you don't see them. You know, Somebody, not on the tube, on people on the tube. If the tube was wearing a sign saying baby on board, well, I suppose it might technically be true, but you see the problem. But you know those signal signs people wear saying baby on board. I once saw a bloke wearing one of those, and I thought, hang on a second, that can't be quite technically correct. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it would be cheesy, wouldn't it? But in a way, Christians should be thinking Holy Spirit on board. Costly reclamation, transformation, resurrection, I now belong to God, the Holy Spirit dwells within me, Holy Spirit on board. How could we? There are just three commands in this passage. The one in verse 9, do not be deceived. Yeah, don't, don't be taken in by the culture, the folly of a pagan culture. You know, you're no longer a lemming floating downstream like dead meat. You're now alive. Don't be with the lemmings who think that you can have sex as precious and at the same time, come on. (laughs) The the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, they may have won. They're now the establishment. You're now the revolutionary Christian. Don't be taken in and deceived by the stupidity of modern culture on this matter. They haven't got a clue because they've abandoned God. Verse 18, flee. And flee means flee. Much modern Christian writing in the 80s and 90s was kind of how close can I get to the water? You know that game you used to play on the beach? Can I get there without getting wet and then run away? And with my girlfriend, you know, how far can I go and all the rest of it? That was very much the writing in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I remember speaking to a young couple in St. Helens a few years back, and uh, they were struggling with temptation in the area of sexual sin, and we got chatting. We looked at a few passages like this, and uh, they then I asked them what they were doing in the summer. We're going on holiday. Where are you going? They're going somewhere nice. And who are you going with? Just the two of us. And and, and where are you going to stay when you go? Oh, we're going to stay in a tent. What together? Yeah, yeah, together. But we won't share the same sleeping bag. Flee? Sexual? Immorality? I mean, give me a break. When was the last time you were fleeing for your life? I wonder. Twice I've done it, once from a bull elephant and once from a bull. And I have to tell you, on no, for no second as I fled from the bull, with its steamy breath breathing down my neck, did I think, ooh, I wonder how close I can get. <laughs> I was pretty much water skiing across the river with my bare feet. Flee. Married men on business trips, Flee. Married women in the office, flee. Single men and women, flee. Teenagers on the internet or at a Saturday night overnight party, flee. Those tempted in the area of heterosexual sexual attraction, those tempted in the area of same-sex sexual attraction, flee. Flee. Glorify God with your body. Bring honor to him. What a great new project, to honor him with my body. Well, we must draw to a close, and that clearly was a signal from the congregation. (laughs) Kyle Harper is professor of classics, senior vice president of Oklahoma University, has written a book, From Sin to Shame, the Christian transformation of sexual morality in late antiquity. How was it that Christian teaching transformed the Roman Empire? It did. It really did. How did it happen? Because it's so good. Because once you start to look at pagan thinking about Christian sexual morality in the 21st century here in London, what they teach in the schools, it's utterly absurd and so damaging. But the idea of sexual purity, oh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's right. And finally, forgiveness, forgiveness. You know, we've talked about things which I suspect for some, well, for pretty much everybody here, you know, we will feel very challenged by, and isn't it wonderful, washed, sanctified, justified at the cross of Christ. Let me lead us in prayer. We thank you for this wonderful reality, our Father in heaven, that we have been bought at a price, that we belong to you and that your Holy Spirit dwells within us. We pray that you would help us to live these radically different, revolutionary lives in our culture.
2: And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, William, a starting one, how do we reconcile the fact that our body will perish with the fact that what we do matters now for our body? Thank
1: you. I think the point Paul is making is that physical matters. So I was quite careful. I think when I taught this passage last, which was a number of years ago now, I I did emphasize it wrongly, that what I do with my body physically matters because my body itself is going to be raised. And I'm not sure that that's quite the point Paul is making here. I think the point he's making is that there is going to be a physical resurrection, and therefore physical stuff matters to God. That's a subtle difference. Um, And because physical stuff matters to God, and God is concerned for the physical, which would have been very counter, I'm told, by the boffins, the Greek thinking, physical stuff really matters, therefore matter matters. So what you do with your body matters. So the point is not so much continuity between this mortal carcass that you see in front of you, but rather that this mortal carcass matters nonetheless, it There may be more, more in it than that. Um, and so you might want to weight it slightly more towards this body is going to be resurrected and it will be this body that's resurrected, albeit profoundly different. And therefore this body still does matter. But I'm not sure you can quite get that from the text here, which is why I rode back a little from where I was previously. That's what happens. You're always changing, aren't
2: you, in your thinking? Yeah. Thank you. A couple of questions here about... Um, what we're we talking about how sexual morality can damage us. Um, what about sexual morality that doesn't involve a sexual partner, or on similar lines, um, having sex if you've remarried after being widowed?
1: Well, sex if you've remarried after being widowed is absolutely—you know—you're in a marriage relationship, and so the marriage relationship ends at death. It's really important we're clear on that, both as children um, of uh, of those who are widowed and as widows or widowers uh, themselves. So the marriage relationship ends at death. But uh, in terms of what about sexual immorality It doesn't involve a, a, a physical partner, I think this is what's so interesting, isn't it? Because he says the sin is against your body, and your body is now joined to Christ. And so you're going to be thinking, how do I use my body for the Lord? And if it's something which is a sexual immorality, directing my sexual passions in a direction the Lord does not want, then that is not for the Lord. Furthermore, so much of sexual immorality that is not involving another physical partner is tied up with images and so forth and a whole industry that is profoundly damaging to men and women. Abusive, damaging, and again, politicians are too cowardly to do anything about it. Um, but they all argue, most of them, openly against it. Um, but uh, it's profoundly damaging, it can only be Hollywood. And sort of some of that comes out in me too, doesn't it? And then you see the inconsistency You know, it's pathetic, really. Me Too is fantastic in terms of what it does to help um, protect women. But then Hollywood keeps pumping out 18s. And you think that the illogical positions that a pagan world
2: adopts. Thank you. There's lots of questions coming in. So we will carry on for a few more minutes. But apologies if we don't get to yours. Um, How do we help encourage a long-term Christian who's finding it really hard to flee?
1: Well, I think passages just such as this, and I think we should, the power of God's word is remarkable. And I've met with really numbers of people like this over the years and encouraged them to learn passages of scripture off by heart. So when they face that temptation, they have God at their side with his executive word Strengthening and encouraging. Pray for them. Uh, and, and I think also help them to see. The, the image I often use is uh, you know, the narrow path, but with many a broad cul-de-sac off, leading off it. I think the key in these areas of temptation is it's it's in the mind, it's isn't it? It's understanding who I am, it's the kind of teaching we've had today. But the practical key can so often be so far back. Once you're on the narrow path, what are the triggers that first move you in the direction off the narrow path? Oh, remember speaking to somebody attempting the area of same-sex sexuality? Uh, It was a particular shop he passed on the way back home. And there was a particular row of magazines. Change your route. Do you see that? That's saying there is, a, there is a cul-de-sac. Same in so many areas of temptation. There is a cul-de-sac. It leaves off. You know it ends up in a profoundly damaging downward spiral. But tackle it early. Um, tackle it early. So I think those sort of practical things can help. Ultimately, it is grasping who I am in Jesus. Do you not know? Do you not know? Six times. Do you not know? Do you not know? The Holy Spirit dwells within you. How could you unite the Lord Jesus, who has now come to dwell in your body by the power of the Holy Spirit in sexual immorality. Be alongside them, encourage them, pray for them, take them to God's
2: word. Yeah. Thank you. Um, question here, perhaps just, um, sep- maybe this is sort of separating categories. Someone saying, is, my, is supporting LGBTQ rights um, the same kind of issue? Is it? Um, a sexual morality thing?
1: I think that is a very challenging one, isn't it? In a pagan culture, should Christians force their morality on pagans? Okay, the progressive, the sexual revolution in the 60s, they are now the establishment. Um, Is it right to try and force Christian morality on non-Christians? Christian morality is better for non-Christians and in politics and so forth, I can totally understand the christian wanting to say look this is madness and to point out some of the things we've been thinking about trying to force christian morality on non-christians i'm not sure is particularly helpful what you want to do is to take them to the gospel as for and if you try and force christian morality on the non-christian and the more you try and do that through your lobbying and signing this that and the other In a sense, the more the non-Christian just thinks you're a moralizer and you're not bringing me the Christian gospel, which is why we don't encourage lobbying, signing petitions here at St. Helens because it just encourages people to think, oh, you're a bunch of moralizers. Though we believe Christian morality is good for Britain, if you like. Um, Would I support LGBT? Certainly not because I think it's profoundly damaging. Would I allow the bullies in my office to make me wear a rainbow, what's it? Or st- Certainly not. I would stand against it, and I wouldn't allow it on my particular thing. And if they said, you've got to have this, I would say, I'm very sorry, I'm not going to. Uh, you're a Christian, not a pagan. And that requires courage. Yeah, but Christians have always had to be courageous.
2: Thank you. There are. Lots more questions and there's some really good ones and there's clearly some particular um, ones that may be just great to chat to a close friend to about or do feel very free to chat to myself or William or Leonie or others in the team. We'd love to continue conversations, but we're out of time. Uh, just, may I just
1: say one very yeah. quick thing? Mm. Matthew Vines and uh, I think his ch- name is Charles Bowman are putting about some of the teaching that I mentioned, which the Andrew Korn's work is so clear against, and, and William Loder, who's you know, n- not taking a, an orthodox view, uh, shows to be simply untenable. And if you've been exposed to the Matthew Vines and Charles Bowman stuff, you know, I have read it. I can help you with it. Be very glad to help if you're from that kind of category. Thank you very much. Super, thanks.